Hey everybody, welcome to the briefing room on this Thursday. I'm Devin Dwyer in Washington. Great to have you with us. A lot of headlines to get to today over in London. Julian Assange arrested after years hold up in the Ecuadorian embassy over at Georgetown, just across town here, the university today holding a vote on reparations and a groundbreaking new study from NASA on what it means to be in space for over a year. We'll get to all of that in just a short bit. But first, want to start overseas with that stunning development this morning and the incredible video of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange being arrested, taken from that Ecuadorian embassy where he had been holed up under asylum and soon potentially to be delivered to the United States for a one-count indictment on conspiracy. I want to bring in our David Wright correspondent who's been on the scene there in London from the beginning. David, uh, what was the break that led the Ecuadorians to finally turn him over? Well, it seems they finally ran out of patience, basically. Uh, it's not clear when the decision was made to hand him over, but it is clear that there's been a change of government in Ecuador. The past regime thumbed its nose at the United States. The new president uh, is has made more friendly overtures. He's actually sat down with Vice President Pence along the way to talk about cooperation agreements. Per perhaps this was among the items on the discussion list. But in any case, abruptly today, after seven years where Julian Assange was pretty much much untouchable, protected in the sovereign soil of Ecuador in that embassy here in London. Uh, the the uh, Ecuadorian authorities uh, called the British police, invited them to come in, and they pretty much frog-marched him out. One of our colleagues here was saying that as you, as you saw that video of him being dragged out, uh, bearded, disheveled, shouting, <laughs> clutching a copy of Gore Vidal's book on the national security state, uh, it almost reminds you of Saddam Hussein being dragged out of his hidey hole uh, all those years ago, kind of. <laughs> yeah, certainly his, to his critics here in the United States, uh, he is uh, in, in Saddam's company, I would think, although uh, defenders uh, of Julian Assange, David, as you know well, ACLU and others calling this a case about the First Amendment, comparing Julian Assange to the greatest American journalist, somebody who's published uh, information that was given to him. But, but remind us why he's so important. He was at the center of so many uh, amazing cases in the past few years of exposing government behavior and politicians uh, at the center of all of our lives. That's right. And, and as you, you're absolutely right to point out that how people feel about Julian Assange really depends on uh, where they sit politically. Some see him as a radical truth teller. And among the truths that he has told are embarrassing ones for the U.S. government. Uh, with uh, Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning, uh, he uh, published a trove of classified Defense Department documents nearly a decade ago, including very embarrassing footage of, of U.S. forces firing on Iraqi civilians, uh, uh, material that otherwise would not have come to light. Shortly thereafter, they published State Department memos that included blunt, behind-the-scenes private assessments of diplomats around the world about world leaders in the areas where they were posted. Some of them really uh, jeopardized America's diplomatic efforts abroad. And then more recently, uh, WikiLeaks has been at the center of the scandal that has come to consume uh, our newscasts uh, so much of the time, uh, Russia's efforts to meddle in the 2016 elections. WikiLeaks was the conduit through which all of those stolen Democratic emails were published. Uh, so it's very interesting, you know, how much truth he's told, uh, whether that's a crime, as the U.S. would, would have it, or a, a, a point of heroism, as his defenders would have it, depends on where you stand.
David Wright, thanks for the reporting. And as you say, at the center of the controversy over the 2016 campaign, we'll see if Julian Assange faces justice here in the United States. Meanwhile, uh, President Trump's relation to Julian Assange and WikiLeaks is also a big part of this story. You'll remember from the 2016 campaign when the president uh, proclaimed that he loves WikiLeaks. Well, our White House correspondent Karen Travers today caught up with the president uh, in the Oval Office. She joins us now. Karen, you asked the president uh, whether, in fact, he still loves WikiLeaks. Devin, the president uh, embraced WikiLeaks in 2016. He said he loved WikiLeaks. It was a treasure trove of information. He enjoyed reading it. So now with the news of Julian Assange's arrest today in London, I asked the president in the Oval Office, do you still love WikiLeaks? Here's what he had to say. Uh, I know nothing about WikiLeaks. It's not my thing. And uh, I know there is something having to do with uh, Julian Assange. I've, I've been seeing what's happened with uh, Assange, and uh, that will be a determination, I would imagine, mostly by the Attorney General, who's doing an excellent job. So he'll be making a, a determination. I know nothing really about him. It's not my, it's not my deal in life. I don't really have any opinion. I know the Attorney General uh, will be involved in that, and he'll make a decision. Here, there in the middle is me following up and asking the president, what punishment do you want to see for Julian Assange? And the president said he doesn't have an opinion on this. Again, punting to Attorney General William Barr, he said it would be up to him. This charge uh, from the U.S. prosecutors against Assange would carry five years in prison. And the president, though, a big shift from a couple years ago, before, long before he launched his campaign for the White House, the president was asked about WikiLeaks back in 2010 when they first released that classified information and what he thought of it. Devin, he said nine years ago, he thought the death penalty should be used in the case of WikiLeaks. Huh, we will see what he thinks if, in fact, Assange is brought to the United States to face justice uh, on that charge. Karen Travers, thanks so much. Great work there in the Oval Office. Our justice reporter, uh, senior justice reporter Jack Date is here. Jack, you've been reading the, the indictment today. It was unsealed, filed over a year ago, unsealed right. today. Uh, and it's only one charge. Tell us what, what Julian Assange has been charged with. It's a single conspiracy count, a conspiracy to basically break into a computer, to help break into a computer. It, but this it, isn't related to the 2016 campaign. No, it, it goes back to 2010. And some uh, some work that he had done with with uh, Chelsea Manning, uh, who who uh, taken secrets from the U.S. government, uh, provided them to WikiLeaks, and and then they published them. Uh, those secrets were considered very damaging to the U.S. government. And you're seeing on the screen the from the court document they allege that Assange was knowingly receiving classified records from Manning for the purpose of disclosing them on the website. This is an allegation, uh, and they said Jack, a big part of this again is conspiracy to get that password well, to right. help so him hack in. It, it appears that that effort was unsuccessful, but the fact that he was working with Manning to try to break into more computers to get more information, that's the conspiracy, and that's what he's charged with. And everyone from the Obama administration to the Trump administration have been trying to get their hands on this guy for so long. He's now in British custody in London. How does it work now? How does he come back to the United States? And I imagine they're fighting that. Right. So Assange's attorneys are going to fight the extradition process, but the U.S. has a very good extradition relationship uh, with the U.K. And so, uh, and the U.S. is going to be patient. They've been patient already with Assange, uh, and uh, they're going to wait out the process. They have no expectation of when exactly they're going to get him in the United States, but uh, it's clear. We're talking a, months, or could this be years? Uh, perhaps. Perhaps years, depending on how long the process takes in the U.K. and whether or not 
he sentenced. He's he's got a, a jumping bail charge in, in in the UK that he could face sentencing for as well. So we might have to wait till, or the U.S. might have to wait till that's done. All right, he faces five years behind bars for that charge here in the United States. He'll start spending some time behind bars in the UK now. Jack, right, no longer in so the cushy no, embassy. And no longer in the embassy. All right, thank you, Jack, for that reporting. Shifting gears now uh, to a major development underway just a few miles from here at Georgetown University, the nation's largest and oldest Catholic university. Students there today are voting on a referendum to give reparations to descendants of slaves. It's an interesting concept. Georgetown would be the first uh, university in the country uh, to approve such a referendum. They want to impose a $27.20 surcharge to each student per semester uh, in recognition of the 272 slaves that Georgetown sold off in the late 1800s uh, to pay for a debt. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit more about this is Yasmin Salam. She's editor-in-chief of the Hoya newspaper, the student newspaper on campus. Yasmin, great to see you. So help us understand what students are actually voting on today. What would this do? Yeah, so today students are voting, as you said, on whether to include a $27 fee in student bills every semester. And basically this money would be allocated towards a charitable fund that would directly benefit the descendants of the GU-272, the 272 enslaved individuals that Georgetown sold by the Maryland province of the Society of Jesus, known as the Jesuits, in 1838 to financially sustain the university. Now, um, if you read the Hoyas coverage in the main newspaper on campus, we've intentionally not used this word reparations purely because the money raised would not go into someone's bank account, but rather is going to be managed by a board, and then this fund would divvy out kind of a charitable motive, so primary education, eye exams, medical assistance, and a lot of these uh, descendants live in um, Louisiana, which is where probably this money is going to be going if it yeah, passes. Yeah, I, I was over on campus uh, a little bit earlier today, you guys, I mean, talked to a bunch of students supporting the referendum. Uh, they did talk about how they want Georgetown to be something of an example for the country, that this fund that they're creating isn't just about getting students into Georgetown, helping them pay for Georgetown, but as you were saying, create a fund to help descendants of slaves everywhere. Uh, the university, though, not so hot on the idea. Let's put up a statement uh, from them, Georgetown, saying that they support uh, the students' ability to express themselves, to have a referendum, to share their perspectives, but they make a point of saying that this referendum is not creating university policy. It's not binding, uh, although they remain committed to engaging with students' descendants in the broader community. Um, Yasmin, want to ask you about that community. It does seem, uh, based on your report, reporting at the Hoya newspaper that students are pretty divided on the question of whether this fund should be set up. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So there's been a lot of debate on both sides. So on the yes side, and I'm sure you spoke to some students already, but they're kind of saying that everything starts with student advoca um, uh, advocacy and activism. So as students, we're all benefiting from this sale, and we kind of can't separate ourselves from the administration, and we need to be part of this change. Uh, back in 2015, because of a student sit-in, that's what kind of sparked the renaming of two buildings of people that were responsible for the sale. Um, however... Um, via like town halls and discussions, there is also quite a prominent no campaign, and there's large there's a lot of reasons for that. Firstly, um, the figure twenty seven dollars and twenty cents is symbolic, uh, rather than calculated, which a lot of people have issue with because there's not been much math behind <laughs> why we exists. Also, a lot of people are saying that the university has a responsibility to atone for its past, but not its students, and some descendants actually in. 
Louisiana, because almost a thousand um, of the descendants from the 272 individuals sold live there, have expressed concern that they haven't been uh, properly informed about this referendum and they kind of feel like it's rushed and the details haven't been as hashed out as one would hope, like how this board uh, is going to divvy up the money and things like that. So yeah, it's we'll definitely... See. Yeah, we'll see how that comes out. We, we understand the turnout was, was quite robust today. Um, Yasmin Salam, uh, editor-in-chief of the Hoya newspaper, um, have to let you go. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing the latest uh, there. We do want to share some perspective of some of the other students at Georgetown that Yasmin was talking about. I caught up with supporters of the referendum a little bit earlier today, including several descendants of slaves who are now enrolled at Georgetown University. Here's a little bit of their perspective on what's going down at Georgetown. Take a listen. I'm just so in awe of the fact that so many students are having this conversation right now and that so many students care about this um, because I think it really means that we're turning the tide on how we have a conversation around slavery and the legacies of it um, and realizing that it's not just in the past, like it still very much affects people every single day. It takes student activism from what I've seen um, to make longer term commitments to this descendant community, which really is part of the Georgetown community. What's important is, first of all, that it's sustainable so that like we're continuing to do things even after that we're gone, even after we graduate. Obviously, this is deeply rooted into my history, but this is deeply rooted into America's history. And I feel like if we want to change this world, it has to start with the next generation, me as a student and other students here, we can create the change that we want for this world. What should people know about the history of Georgetown, their reliance on slavery, and the sale of the 272 almost 200 years ago? Well, I think people should know everything about that because it is a microcosm of who we are as Americans. This is very much about setting an example for the country. Absolutely. And we hope that this will be a model to open dialogues. Um, we've been talking about it for a long time. Let's step up to the plate and better up. All right, that's one perspective. You're looking at a live picture right now, though, of some protests underway on Georgetown University campus, uh, trying to turn out the vote for this referendum, again, to give uh, reparations to descendants of slaves on behalf of Georgetown University students, $27.20 per semester. It's a non-binding resolution, and our Erica King is there uh, and appreciate her reporting. I want to bring into this conversation now Professor William Darity, Jr. He's a Duke uh, University uh, professor, also a leading scholar on the economics uh, of reparations. Professor, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. I want to get your take on, on this student effort at Georgetown, kind of the first of its kind. What do you make of it? Will it make a difference? Um, I am extremely admiring of the students' moral concern over this issue and their efforts to try to craft a scheme of restitution. Uh, I do have a reservation, which is uh, the following. I think that um, the context for slavery and subsequently for Jim Crow and for ongoing, uh, ongoing racism in the United States is one that's, that's, that's built by the legal authorities in the United States of America. And, and given that, uh, any universities or colleges that have a history of complicity with slavery in the United States uh, are, are institutions that were uh, a product of that context. And so I think that there's a wider responsibility than one that's associated with individual students 
or individual institutions. I think that what the colleges and universities that are, are, are have a history of complicity with slavery and the slave trade should actually do is form a consortium to lobby for reparations for all black Americans at the congressional level, uh, because I think this is not a matter of individual guilt. I think this is a matter of national responsibility. And I, I would love to see the students make a next step, go beyond this, towards pushing their university to become part of a lobbying consortium for the objective of achieving reparations at the national level. And it does seem, uh, Professor, to your point, that, that this will be a top topic during the Democratic presidential primary already. So many of the candidates talking about that very thing on the national level. Some legislation we know uh, has been drafted, introduced up on Capitol Hill and this part of this movement. Um, I guess as we talk about reparations, sort of to your point, we're talking about a sum of money. And I've I wondered, especially in light of my conversations today, how do you put a dollar figure on the wrong of slavery? And, and, and how do you come to that conclusion? Where do you draw that line? So there are multiple ways in which we put uh, dollar figures on a variety of harms or damages that occur in our society. Uh, we've put a dollar figure on the lives of individuals who were lost in the 911 tragedy. Uh, so we, we have procedures for doing that. Uh, to try to do that in the context of the cost and damages associated with slavery, with legal segregation in the United States and ongoing racism uh, might require some kind of, uh, of, of differential accounting for each of those phases. Uh, but let me recommend one strategy as a baseline, which is to calculate the present value of the 40 acres that were never given to the formerly enslaved, even though they were promised that amount as a stake in American society when they were supposed to enter into citizenship after the Civil War. So we could, we could calculate the present value of that, and we could use that as a baseline figure for the total reparations bill. And that certainly is uh, one of the ideas on the table. We know that this debate will continue robustly into, uh, into the end of the year and through the campaign. Professor William Darity, Jr. from Duke University, thank you so much, sir, for coming and appreciate your time today. And shifting gears again here in the briefing room, we're now just four days from tax day. We've talked about uh, the state of the tax season here on the show. But as Democrats now demand to see Donald Trump's 1040s, a number of 2020 presidential candidates are revealing their own returns. And our Catherine Folders, our uh, campaign reporter, is here to uh, get into those numbers because it's so important, Catherine, Democratic candidates for president. They're trying to set the example uh, after sort of hitting the president on this, they're trying to, to show they can uh, put money where they're Yeah, they're trying to lead by example here. And of course, this comes as uh, Democrats have requested information on the president's taxes from the IRS. He's refusing to release those, saying he's under audit. Uh, but it might surprise you because there's a crowded field of Democrats. You can see them right there. Those are the ones who have not released their taxes, Devin. Only four of them have. You can see them right there. The first senator to do it was Kirsten Gillibrand. Take a listen. Hi, I just posted my latest tax returns online. That is something that I've done over the last 10 years plus. I want voters to know that I am beholden to no one, uh, that my values are not for sale, and that I'm working only for you. 
Okay, so she was one of four to... She was the first to release her 2018 returns. She was the first one returns. to release her 2018 returns. Um, but look, a lot of them are making this a referendum. You can see them right there. On, on President Trump, Inslee, for example, said, I call on President Trump and the other 2020 presidential candidates to follow me on this commitment of transparency. But the one to watch, Devin, is Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. He's just revealed in a new uh, New York Times interview that he's now a millionaire. He got a lot of pressure during the 2016 campaign to release his taxes. He says he released one year of them during the 2016 campaign, but he only released two pages of his 2014 return. But he says that on tax day on Monday, we can expect to see 10 years of his returns. All right, so we'll keep an eye on Bernie Sanders, one who's been attacking billionaires and millionaires, now saying he's one yep. of them, also wanting to see the president's returns. Catherine Falders, thanks for setting up the conversation. Uh, for more on what this all means, why we should care about candidates' tax returns, I want to bring into to the conversation two very smart people on this. Sarah Breiner from the Center for Responsive Politics joins us uh, live from Chicago. She's uh, part of a watchdog group which analyzes uh, money and politics. Also bring in our political director Rick Klein joins us uh, as well. Sarah, I want to start with you. Um, there's no law requiring uh, t tax returns to be released. Donald Trump says people really don't care about his, but uh, you and your organization say this is so important. Why do we need to see these things? Well, I think that it's really important fundamentally for us to know who is representing us. And uh, a person's financial background can bring to that person conflicts of interest, um, and it also speaks to the kind of representative that they are, especially if you have candidates campaigning as though they are one type of person, but their financial records show them to be someone else. So we really support the idea of making sure that the American people can see um, the financial backgrounds of their members of Congress and presidents. And Rick Klein, despite all these calls from Democrats, I was sort of surprised, as we did in accounting today, that so few of the 2020 candidates have actually released their, their tax returns yet, including Bernie Sanders. What do you make of that? Maybe they're procrastinators, Devin. It's not April 15th yet. I, they're all, to my mind, as a functional political matter, you can't run as a Democratic candidate for president and not release your taxes. And in a weird way, President Trump's refusal to do so has made it absolutely imperative. Bernie Sanders really got away with this last cycle. It will not happen again. He is being forced, almost shamed into doing it because the other candidates are doing it. And it is now viewed as just the basic threshold of accountability. Keep in mind, there's Democrats on Capitol Hill, not just that are asking for Donald Trump's taxes in an active way right now, but also make, tr trying to make it a requirement that future presidential candidates release their taxes before standing for office. So I do think it's a new threshold question. And if you're not going to release your taxes, it's just hard for me to imagine withstanding the, the barrage of attacks that will happen on a primary stage about you being just as bad as Trump. And Sarah, if you're the average voter uh, following this, you think, well, surprise, surprise, a lot of these candidates, Donald Trump included, are simply rich people. They write books. They make a lot of money. But as a, um, as a watchdog, what do you look for in the returns when trying to assess what might be of interest in there? And what should the average person look for when they uh, read news reports, see the actual returns as they come out? What are, what are we looking for? I think some of the most inter interesting information in these is sort of how um, these people hold on to wealth. Uh, so what do they own? Um, the tax returns provide much more fine-tuned numbers for that kind of information than the other financial disclosures that politicians have to file. So you can get a sense of what they're selling, what they're buying, how much their companies are bringing in. Um, and that really fundamentally speaks to what 
the politician has to gain or lose from serving in office, um, particularly as these are the people who are writing financial regulations. Um, they're the people who are passing legislation uh, on taxation. And so understanding how they might personally benefit from or suffer from those policies, I think, is something that the American people deserve to know and, and should care about. And Rick, real quick, before we let you go, how big of a factor is this to voters out there in the primary states, do you think? I, I don't think it's something you're ever going to tell a pollster is critical. I think candidates are worried about looking like they're hypocritical, either because they make as much as, as money as a, as a millionaire might, and that they're part of that top 1%, as Elizabeth Warren's taxes showed, as Bernie Sanders are likely to show, or because it shows that you haven't given enough money to charity and you don't, you don't speak your values through that way. I think it is, though, as an accountability issue, a, a critical one for Democrats these days. And when you look at the, the litany of things that, the, that Democrats view Donald Trump has gotten wrong, abandoning this tradition over the last four decades of allowing full public scrutiny of taxes is something that uh, the Democrats do talk about. And again, I just I think that that's the that's the context here. It's not going to be that so and so made a few dollars more or less than somebody else. It's that they are able to show the American people, look, this is my these are my sources of income and I have nothing to hide. All right, political director Rick Klein, hope you got your taxes done, buddy. Thank you so I'm much. And Sarah Breiner, <laughs> great. Sarah Breiner from the Center of Responsive Politics joining us from Chicago. Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, finally today, just want to kick the show with a bit of interesting news out of NASA. Uh, you may have uh, heard about a groundbreaking study that they did with two familiar faces, uh, both in science and in politics. Re astronaut Scott Kelly, who's now running for office, the first man to spend a year in space, and his twin brother, Mark Kelly. You see him there uh, on the right. Study about the health effects of spending a year in space turns out that uh, people can stay in space a pretty long time and have a pretty limited uh, impact on their health. That has some potential ramifications for the future. Joining us now on the phone is Dr. Susan Bailey, uh, a cancer biologist with Colorado State University. She was one of the co-authors of the study. Uh, doctor, thanks for for coming on. Give us your top line. What was the your biggest takeaway and so what surprised you from this NASA study of the twins? Well, hello, and thank you. Thank you for your interest in the study. I mean, it's been a remarkable uh, study and certainly the most comprehensive view of the uh, response of the human body to spaceflight that, that NASA's ever, ever conducted. And our, our particular part of it was um, looking at addressing the question of aging. So we were looking at telomeres, the ends of our chromosomes, and we, we measured telomere length for both Mark and Scott before during and after um, the one-year mission, and then we're able to compare the two using Mark as, as our ground control. And certainly the most surprising finding that we had was that Scott's telomeres were longer in space than, than they were either before or after uh, space flight. And that was So just does that mean you live longer? <laughs> Well, I mean, that would be a, a tempting thing, but I, I don't think it's going to be the fountain of youth um, because well, the minute he came back, his telomere shortened. Ah, uh, okay. Well, I, do, I did yeah. want to ask you, though, uh, some of the other findings were fascinating, and, and folks can go and read uh, online uh, on the NASA website and at abcnews.com, but right. other things you found, that the astronauts lost 77%, 7% of their body weight while in space, but I was struck by the finding that cognitive speed improved while in outer space, really? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think that there was some of that, but then I, again, the most important thing was when he came back to Earth, was that in fact, you know, cognitive ability was had declined. So uh, I think so that, you know, that's probably we need to go live in space and stay in space, I guess. <laughs> 
guess, I guess that's the bottom line, huh? All right. Dr. Susan Bailey uh, with the Colorado State University, one of the co-authors of the new NASA twin study that took a look at astronauts Mark Kelly and Scott Kelly. Uh, Mark Kelly spending a year in space. Uh, incredible time up there. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us and much more again, as we said, on ABCnews.com. Thanks for joining us here in the briefing room on this Thursday. Great to have you. We'll have a lot more coverage later on ABC News Live. And be sure to be back here tomorrow for a Friday edition, 3.30 Eastern time. Hope to see you then.